very happy to welcome you to the Hoover Institution and to welcome our distinguished speaker, Andrew Roberts. I think everybody realizes who he is and what he's done. He's the author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny, Leadership in War, the Storm of War, etc., etc. He was educated at, with his bachelor's and PhD at Cambridge University of England. He's no stranger to the Hoover Institution. He was the, a charter and original member of our military history and contemporary conflict working group. And he's been a visiting fellow at Hoover thanks to the generosity of Martha and Roger Mertz, whose generosity really helped jumpstart the entire military history pro project. In addition to the 19 books and being a, he's a visiting lecturer, as I said, at Hoover, he's also a visiting professor of the New York Historical Society, the Lewis Lehrman Fellow, and a visiting professor of war studies at King's College London. He's just, it's just been announced that his book was not a, a book of the year, but the book of the year by the Times of London, which is an unusual and, and rare honor indeed. And... Uh, I think it's no exaggeration to say that he's probably the most accomplished historical biographer in the English-speaking world. And I just want to end by suggesting why that is. And I, I think when you look at his, the totality of his work, there's three themes that are prevalent. Number one, he, he writes an interesting story. He's an excellent prose stylist. He was from the very beginning with his book on Halifax and the history of the English-speaking peoples. And at the, in this period of specialization and dash study studies, it's very strange to see somebody who has mastered the 18th and 19th century arts of narrative history in the, in the tradition of Gibbon or, or Prescott or someone of that sort. Second, he's an archivist, and that's important at the Hoover Institution because of our emphasis on archives. So just when you think he appeals to a popular audience, you can see that when he writes Masters and Commanders, he has access to previously unknown or even unpublished diaries of the major military commanders of World War II. Or when you think nobody can say another word about Napoleon, he has access to unpublished letters from Napoleon. Same is true of the Churchill biography, the royal correspondence or diaries, the royal family, the king. And so on almost every major project he, uh, he undertakes, it's imperative that he finds new information and tries to make that accessible. But in addition to that, I think finally there's something unique about Andrew. He's an unapo unapologetic traditionalist and conservative, but he's not an ideologue. He's neither predictably conservative in his historical work, nor is he just popularly a revisionist, a contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. So when you pick up Masters and Commanders, the story of Roosevelt and Churchill and their subordinates, Allen Brooke and George Marshall, you would think that FDR would come off pretty badly, given Churchill and Andrew's affection for him and later work of him. He doesn't. It's a very fair portrayal of FDR. In some cases, Churchill comes off less astute, especially about the Mediterranean strategy. And just when you think that the icon George Marshall can do no wrong, the exerbic and self-centered Allen book comes off as a pretty valuable strategist to have around. I, when I reviewed Napoleon, the magnificent of Napoleon the Great, I thought, well, Andrew's a conservative. He's really going to let Napoleon have it. He didn't. 
He did chronicle the wrath of destruction that Napoleon wrought, but at the end he said, with all warts and all, he kept up much of the revolutionary idealism and fervor, uh, the good side of the French Revolution, and institutionalized it. And I think the same is true with this magnificent new biography of George III. I think uh, he's trying to tell, I don't think he went so far in this book to say that unfortunately we missed out on being good Canadians, but he's saying to all of us, uh, yes, we were very patriotic, we were idealistic, and we fought ferociously against the British, but part of our success was that George III was not a tyrant of continental Europe, but actually a humane man uh, that it was much easier to rebel against uh, than not. And with that, can you help me welcome Andrew Roberts? Thank you so much, Victor. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to be invited to address you this evening. And thank you very much indeed, Victor, for those tremendously uh, kind words. And, uh, and it's also an honor to uh, have Roger and Martha Mertz here, who have endowed my um, visiting fellowship and have become great friends over the last few years. When my um, wife said goodbye to me on this uh, book tour, uh, she said, uh, so you're going to try and make Mad King George popular in America? <laughs> and I said, yes, darling, um, knowing something like this was going to, uh, going to crop up. I said, yes, darling, that, I, that is the idea. That's what I'm going to try and do. And she said, well, if you pull that off, then um, you do realize that King Herod is going to get in touch, seeing whether or not you can help make him parent of the year. <laughs> Um, he, the verdict of history on George III has been uniform. It has been uniformly negative in this country, understandably, of course, but also in my country, where the Whig historians for 200 years uh, denounced him as a, uh, as, a, as a tyrant and a monster. Um, there's a cleric hue about him that goes, King George III should never have occurred. One can only wonder at so grotesque a blunder. Um, we know three things about him, of course. The first, that he had porphyria, um, a physiological disease and a, and a horrific one. Um, the second was that because of his porphyria and also because of his obstinacy, he lost the American colonies for uh, Britain, um, both caused the revolution and also lost the uh, American War of Independence. And thirdly, of course, we know that he was a tyrant because uh, the Declaration of Independence said that he was unfit to be the ruler of a free people. And this is underlined... <coughs> of course, by uh, the uh, important historical contribution made by Lin-Manuel Miranda um, in, uh, in Hamilton the Musical. Ladies and gentlemen, all three of those things are completely untrue. He did not suffer from porphyria. I go in some detail in the um, appendix of this book to explain how, in fact, that theory, which started in the late 1960s because of a mother and son um, medical team giving what can only be described as totally misleading symptoms to the doctors of the day. And in fact, um, he, had, uh, he didn't have porphyria at all. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of it, not least because uh, it's largely about the color of the king's urine and feces. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, what he, what he actually did 
suffer from was the um, bipolar disease affective type 1, um, a form of manic depression. It's also not true that this had anything to do with the American uh, Revolution, owing to the fact that he had one prodrome attack of it for a few months in 1765, and then nothing until, again, until 1788, by which time America had been independent for five years. So it was, um, it was not a factor. Nor is it true that he was uh, that his obstinacy was in some way uh, or his tyranny was in some way responsible for the American Revolution. He was uh, somebody who admired, indeed revered the uh, Constitution of 1688, the glorious uh, Revolution Constitution, understandably because it gave him many uh, powers. Although I noticed from the Harvard Law Review last April that uh, the present American uh, imperial presidency actually has more powers than King George III. Um, but this is, to an extent, the key, um, the key point that I was uh, and am trying to make in this book, which was that he was not a tyrant. We know what tyrants look like. The definition of an 18th century tyrant, uh, by the way, was a cruel despot. We know what cruel despots and tyrants were like in the late 18th century. Um, Catherine the Great killed 50,000 Russians after the Pugachev uprising. The uh, way that the French behaved in Corsica or the Spanish in Louisiana uh, or the Prussians and Austrians to the Poles, um, this was entirely on a, on a far more aggressive, cruel and despotic um, level than George III, who in the course of his uh, of his reign, never arrested an American uh, editor or, um, or closed an American newspaper, didn't attempt to stop the Stamp Act Congress or the First Continental Congress, uh, never positioned, never sent an army to any of the um, any of the American cities except for Boston in 1768. He did not act like a, um, a tyrant does. But it's perfectly understandable, of course, why the, um, the Declaration of Independence should uh, make him out to be one, because apart from anything else, he was, uh, this was 14 months into a war, and it was a superb propaganda document, one of the most beautifully written, most, most sublime Shakespearean in terms of its prose, um, absolutely magnificent document for the first third of it. The, um, it makes you proud to be a human reading, uh, reading the um, sentiments of the first third of the Declaration. After that, you have two-thirds of it, which tries to argue um, and makes 28 charges against uh, George III, only two of which stand up. The 17th, which was about um, taxation, and the 22nd, which was about Parliament's rights of veto over American legislation. And those in and of themselves justify the American Revolution. By 1775, the, really from the, from the um, 1760s onwards, um, America was ready to become, and its, its level of historical development was such that it needed to become an independent state. You had 2.5 million um, population, um, a burgeoning economy, 7% or so year-on-year -year growth. You had more bookshops in Philadelphia than in any other city of the empire, apart from Edinburgh uh, and London, and you ha had therefore, most importantly, because of the Treaty of Paris, no external 
French threat on the continent of North America. The nearest French army was in um, Haiti. So you had this opportunity, and quite understandably and rightly, the founding fathers took it to be an independent and, uh, and self-governing um, entity. But that does not make the king that they were rebelling against a, uh, a tyrant. He was not. The um, Stamp Act that is so often um, presented as an example of the tyranny of the king, I think needs to be looked at quite carefully, and that which I try to do in this book, owing to the fact that it was only attempting to raise between 40 and 60,000 pounds um, at a time when the uh, population, as I say, of, uh, of America was 2.5 million, the unenslaved uh, were 1.9 million. So actually, to, uh, to work out um, how much it costs is about two, two shillings and sixpence per American per year. And also, um, all of that money was going to be spent in America. It was um, not the appalling imposition that it's been made out to be, but understandably, it was a constitutional move that was, uh, that was considered to be one stage too far by people who, as I say, wanted independence. In the course of um, the period since 2015, Her Majesty the Queen has allowed an enormous cornucopia of, uh, of papers of King George III, some 100,000 pages of his private papers, memoranda, correspondence, and so on, to uh, become available. And as um, Victor very kindly uh, pointed out, this is absolutely wonderful for anybody who loves archives. And uh, this book is very much based on that. And one sees all sorts of uh, fascinating aspects of um, George III, including the fact that in um, the 1750s, sadly we don't know which date in the 1750s, when, as Prince of Wales, he was writing a... Um, essay about Montesquieu's essays on the laws, he wrote this um, about the arguments for um, that had been put forward for um, slavery. He said, what shall we say for a European traffic in black slaves? The very reasons urged for it will be perhaps sufficient to make us hold such practice in execration. For an inhuman custom, wantonly practiced by the most enlightened, polite nations in the world, there is no occasion to answer them, for they stand self-condemned. George III, ladies and gentlemen, never bought or sold a slave in his life. He never owned a slave. He never invested in any of the companies that did that. Um, he, of course, signed the legislation that abolished the slave trade in, uh, in 1807, and yet he's, he's um, held, and has been held for 200 years by the Whig historians, as being somehow morally inferior to the uh, 41 of the 56 uh, signatories of the Declaration of Independence who did own slaves. Um, we see from, the, uh, from this enormous, as I say, avalanche of, uh, of new information about George III, fascinating aspects of him. But one of the ones that, um, that uh, really uh, drove me in the course of the three years in which I was writing and researching this book was uh, an attempt to, uh, to rebut the 
uh, incredibly ad hominem personal attacks made by Thomas Paine in the best-selling of all of the 18th century, late 18th century uh, pamphlets, Common Sense, which was, of course, published in January 1776, in which uh, Paine accused the king of being the royal brute of Britain. Um, and, uh, and tried to make him out to be ignorant and, uh, and brutish and so on. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the man who founded the Royal Academy, who bought at least half of um, the, in fact, over half of the Royal Collection, today the largest private art collection in, uh, in, in the world. He was the person who um, supported the whole concept of, um, of neoclassical Georgian architecture, uh, promoting people like Robert Adams and, uh, and William Chambers and James Wyatt and so on. He was somebody who... The planet Uranus was named after originally because of his interest in astronomy and his support for William Herschel and his uh, helping to buy the largest telescope in the world. Um, somebody who brought over Mozart to play at Buckingham Palace, um, supported, uh, tried to bring, tried to keep Haydn in Britain and also played for musical instruments himself. Um, and of whom Handel said that while this young man lives, um, my uh, music needs no protector. This is actually somebody who is one of the most, arguably the most cultured of, um, of British kings. He um, was uh, instrumental also in the um, in paying John Harrington, um, who had uh, who had uh, discovered the. Um, the way to measure longitude. He was an um, extraordinary bibliophile. Um, his 80,000 books of his library, which he allowed any subject who wanted to, any scholar to come and work in his library at, uh, at Buckingham House, subsequently Buckingham Palace. Those 80,000 books now form the kernel of the uh, British Library today. The idea of calling him a brute was, again, something that is perfectly understandable in terms of wartime propaganda, but bears absolutely no uh, resemblance to the truth about this highly enlightened monarch and almost Renaissance prince. He was popular in Britain because he was British. He was the first um, monarch for 150 years to be born and bred in Britain. And uh, this was pointed out by him to the uh, House of Commons when he gave his, uh, his state, of the, um, state opening of Parliament in 1761. He said, uh, born and educated in this country, um, I glory in the name of Britain. And uh, this was very unusual. His grandfather, uh, King George II, uh, spoke English very haltingly and in a very heavy German accent. His father had a German accent. His great-grandfather, George I, didn't even speak any English. Um, whereas uh, the king, uh, King George III, didn't speak... Uh, he, he, he spoke German and four other languages, um, thereby also slightly undermining the idea that he was ignorant and, uh, and unintelligent. Um, but he spoke uh, English entirely without a, uh, a German accent. And he was also nicknamed, especially by his enemies at the beginning, Farmer George. It was a way that intellectuals attempted to, uh, to embarrass him. But in fact, of course, in a country where 80% of people took their livelihood from agriculture, his interest in progressive agricultural techniques, he used to write articles for uh, agricultural, um, <laughs> agricultural papers, um, 
about uh, crop rotation and manure and, and so on, um, in fact made him, uh, made him popular. Um, he was um, un very unfortunate as a, uh, as a um, child or a young man uh, when his father, uh, Frederick Prince of Wales, died very suddenly of an aneurysm when he was 12 years old. He had a very good relationship with his father, which is tremendously, un almost completely unknown in, um, in Hanoverian um, circles, owing to the fact that they were a house a royal house of extraordinary dysfunctionality. Um, they all seem to hate uh, their children and their parents. And, um, and this was not the case with, uh, with uh, George III. But when his father died, uh, when George was 12, uh, his grandfather, George II, so hated his own son, Frederick Prince of Wales, that he refused to bury him. And he had the corpse um, of his father, George III's father, um, uh, decomposing in the room above his bedroom until finally the, uh, this putrefying corpse was, uh, was uh, buried at Westminster Abbey. Um, he was a loving father. This also made him very unusual um, in the... Uh, sorry, he was a loving husband, which also made him tremendously unusual in the Hanoverian um, family. The, uh, he was the only one not to take a mistress, uh, the only one of the Hanoverians to be in love with his wife, who he met for the first time six hours before their wedding. Um, and uh, so, of course, it was a completely arranged marriage, but one that later turned into a genuine love match. They had lots of things in common, and they fell in love with each other after they were married. Um, unfortunately, because of the, um, of the, the monstrous king's malady, this, this terrible disease that he had, uh, it was to destroy the marriage after 44 years of, uh, of, of happy marriage. There was a, um, uh, I don't want in any way to seem that, uh, to make it seem that this is a hagiography. There were lots of things that were not uh, right about, um, about George, that were not good about George III. Um, he was tremendously self-righteous. He never think he, thought he did anything wrong, which considering that he was king at the time of the greatest strategic catastrophe to overcome Britain between the loss of the Angevin lands in the 15th century and the fall of France in 1940 it was in itself quite extraordinary. Um, but he never recognised that, um, that uh, he did anything wrong. Um, he also, I have to say, had a sense of humour that is best uh, described as Hanoverian. Um, there's, that, there's that great um, Mel Brooks line, what's the opposite of comedy? Germany. Um, and uh, he was not a uh, he was not a particularly uh, funny man. He tried to be funny on occasion, and it was a disaster. Um, but um, but nonetheless, this book fortunately does have lots of jokes in it, owing to the fact that, of course, the uh, 18th century was an absolute high point of um, of repartee and uh, and wit and parliamentary um, debating uh, uh, points and so on. I know many of you have heard this um, joke, but it's my favourite joke of the late 18th century, so I'm going to tell it anyhow, um, which was when um, the Earl of Sandwich, the first Lord of the Admiralty, uh, told um, John Wilkes, the radical journalist, that he was either going to die of the pox or on the gallows. And John Wilkes replied, well, that depends, Your Lordship, on whether or not I embrace Your Lordship's principles or your mistress. 
Uh, George III was a very courageous man. He had a, um, during the invasion attempt in, uh, by the French and Spanish in 1779, where he behaved superbly during the uh, appalling Gordon riots of the 1780, uh, when he when 400 people were killed in a week in, uh, in London. It was the largest destruction, physical destruction of, of London between the Great Fire of London in 1666 and the Blitz of 1940 to 41. And uh, one of his aides-de-camp said that he didn't know what fear was. He survived six assassination attempts um, by uh, people suffering from mental illness. Um, he um, actually and was incredibly cool in all of them. There was one marvellous moment where somebody shot at him in the theatre and he went to sleep in the interval. <laughs> um, he was um, really at his bravest, though it struck me, during this uh, terrible um, crisis of his illness in 1789 and, uh, uh, 1788 and 1789, when he was struck with this uh, manic depression. He foamed at the mouth. He babbled on. He spoke for 19 hours at one sitting at one point. He became violent uh, and had to be straight-jacketed and held down. And they also, because the doctors at the time knew absolutely nothing about this uh, illness, they did exactly the wrong thing, uh, which included cupping him, which was a horrible sort of torturous process where um, they put a, uh, a cup on the th arm or the, or the thigh and heated it up to create blisters and, uh, and bruising. Uh, and, they, and they also... Um, uh, took blood from him, large amounts of blood. And these, of course, were the absolute opposite of what uh, somebody really uh, needed when he was suffering from a mental illness. And one of the things about this book I'm proud to um, be able to say is that this is the first book to use all of the medical, the modern medical um, opinion to prove that he did not have porphyria, but he did have manic depression. And we've used all sorts of uh, extraordinary experts, both in psychiatry and also in, uh, in porphyria, to come to this um, this uh, point. And it's also the first book, indeed it's the first biography of uh, George III, um, a narrative biography of George III for half a century. And so it has been written at a time when mental illness has been destigmatized finally and thankfully. And so uh, George III can't be blamed, as he has been by Whig historians for 200 years essentially, for his own, um, his own illness. Nor, it strikes me, can he be blamed for the grand strategy of the, that led to the defeat in the American War of Independence. He had, uh, the British only really had one plan, which was called the Germain Plan, uh, invented by Lord George Germain, the uh, American secretary, which was to bring um, Sir William Howe coming up from New York, uh, up the Hudson River, to meet uh, Sir John Burgoyne, who was coming down from Canada to, um, to get to Albany, to meet at Albany and thereby use the Hudson, control of the Hudson River to split the New England colonies off from the rest of the uh, 13 colonies. That was the, that was the plan. But unfortunately... Um, in 1777, Sir William, unfortunately, as far as I'm concerned, at least, sorry, <laughs> forgot for a moment I was speaking to an American audience, you might think of it slightly differently. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, uh, 
what happened was uh, Sir William Howe broke off uh, and went east and captured Philadelphia, uh, which of course was the enemy capital as far as he was concerned, and thereby um, left Burgoyne stranded to the point that he was then, of course, um, forced to surrender at Saratoga in October 1777. Um, at which point the uh, the French uh, got into the war in 1778. Um, the French, you've got to remember about the French, they're always there when uh, they need you. Um, and the um, Dutch got involved in 1779, uh, sorry, the Spanish in 1779, the Dutch in 1780. And so suddenly what was a colonial war uh, and was a very difficult colonial war in and of itself because it was being fought 3,000 miles away and every single soldier, British soldier, of which there were only 35,000 for most of the war in America, um, only they, they each one needed one third of a ton of supplies to be brought over from, uh, from Britain. So logistically, it was a tremendously difficult um, war to fight. And when it then turned into a world war um, between 1778 and 1780, um, it had to be fought in the West Indies, in the East Indies. Uh, Gibraltar in the Mediterranean was subjected to a grueling uh, thousand-day siege. And, um, and so it suddenly turned into not just a war on two fronts, but a war on five or six fronts, including Africa and so on. So um, you have this, uh, this um, series of, uh, of harder and harder um, struggles to fight. And the king was um, not responsible for either the Germain plan or the subsequent plans of the uh, North administration to um, to uh, to try and win that war, he can't be blamed, as I argue in this book very strongly, either for the um, causes of the war or indeed the course of it, uh, which of course was uh, was as I mentioned disastrous. But once it had been lost, um, he was the person who met. John Adams, the first uh, American ambassador to the court of St. James, at St. James's, um, in the audience of June 1785, and he said this, I will be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, and I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. Um, he then, 15 years later, when George Washington gave up the presidency in March 1797, uh, said that George Washington was the greatest character of the age. I think, uh, I think those, are, um, those, those two statements uh, redound well to um, George III's uh, memory. When um, one thinks of his legacy, George III's legacy, of course... Um, the most powerful parts of it, it strikes me, are in the um, modern monarchy. He had a, uh, an effect on the modern monarchy that I think made him more important than the person who everybody else, um, almost every other historian, um, ascribes the, um, the, the um, modern monarchy to, which is, of course, his granddaughter, Queen Victoria. But it was actually George III who um, bought Buckingham uh, Palace, who bought the Gold Stage Coach, who started the Royal Walkabouts, who um, created the Royal Enclosure at Ascot, who had a, um, 
Trooping of the Colour was his, uh, the annual Trooping of the Colour was his idea as well. Um, and when one looks at Her Majesty the Queen uh, today, uh, you see elements of George III in his um, personal frugality when it comes to eating and drinking, to his um, prudence, financial prudence, to his uh, sense of incredible hard work. Um, and also his sense of duty. All of these can be seen in the present um, in the present monarch, and I think that uh, that those are um, important legacies of his. I see from the um, National Archives, your National Archives in in Washington, that the uh, that there is now a trigger warning on the Declaration of Independence. Um, that it says that it is, um, and I've got the quote here: outdated, biased, and offensive. Um, well, as far as George III is concerned, that's clearly true. Um, but, uh, but it does strike me as, as completely absurd to have a trigger warning on an 18th century document. Um, anybody who reads an 18th century document expecting it to reflect the uh, views and opinions of the 21st uh, century has to be clinically insane. Um, and, uh, and the pulling down of the statue of uh, Thomas Jefferson, or at least the moving of the statue from the uh, City Hall in uh, New York equally, strikes me as an extremely dangerous thing for a country to trash its, uh, its founding fathers. Because, yes, of course, he was um, part of this monstrous evil of, um, of, uh, of slavery. But he was also somebody who had the incredible courage, along with the rest of the founding fathers, of standing up and fighting against the most powerful empire in the world. As I was explaining earlier, I don't believe that it was an oppressive empire. Uh, in many ways, it was one of the freest. American colonies in the 1760s and 70s were one of the freest societies in the world. However, to, to stand up and fight for independence and self-government, which was proved to have been the right thing because within 100 years you became the most powerful nation in the world was obviously the um, something that took immense guts and these people were also responsible for fashioning a constitution that has lasted for over two centuries and which um, required frankly genius to put together um, a way in which you could keep a nation um, and uh, and ultimately of course four score and seven years later abolish slavery so um it uh, it does strike me that although um, what you what the constitution says about being outdated, biased, and offensive, which of course is nothing to do with George III, but to uh, references to uh, other peoples, including the Native Americans, um, is a uh, is an absurdity. When one comes to it, and this is the last point I'd like to make, but and if you take away nothing from my speech, please um, uh, take away this. Um, when the uh, discussion takes place about um, exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, whether or not America is an exceptional power. Uh, it strikes me that there are many peoples in the world uh, throughout history who have rebelled, quite rightly, against oppressive nations and taken their sovereignty and their independence. One thinks of the Israelites against the Egyptians, the uh, Dutch against the Spanish, the Italians against the Austrians, the Greeks against the Turks. There are any number of uh, examples of it throughout history. But what America did exceptionally was to demand its independence and its sovereignty against a 
um, king who was not oppressive. And that, it strikes me, is extraordinarily exceptional. Thank you very much. Good. Now, we have plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, if anybody would like to put their hands up, these two ladies are going to, uh, there's one there, um, going to give you a microphone. Don't ask the question until the microphone gets to you. We've got CNN, uh, sorry, uh, C-SPAN that is covering this. And uh, so they want to, the, the, the listeners will want to hear what the question is. So. Uh. Andrew, uh, it's a delight to see you again, and uh, I hope you survived the arduous uh, trip. Uh, as you noted, you're not in England anymore, uh, and uh, there were some comments made about the patriots in Massachusetts after the French and Indian War uh, being rather ungrateful for the defense that the uh, king and parliament had magnanimously provided them from a French threat. Now, I know in England there is a quaint custom whereby uh, heirs of a famous person four or five generations downstream claim a personal privilege uh, to reject any criticism of someone they never knew and <laughs> know nothing about. But I, I want to claim that uh, for this English-speaking person, um, be because uh, I was always proud that in my family tree were some ornaments that uh, I thought were worthy of respect, and were down to me, but there were two presidents by the name of Adams, both, and there was an embattled farmer at both Lexington and Concord. And, and you paint them as you know, being sort of querulous and ungrateful. Uh, because of the protection that Britain had given them. But isn't it just as true that Britain was protecting its huge trading interest in the United States? And although it didn't uh, treat Americans with the disdain of, say, Indians, Americans were not allowed to defend themselves. And when Washington went with British troops to defend or build and, and, and lose Fort Necessity, he went back to Governor Dinwiddie, according to Ron Chernow, uh, and th they weren't paid. And, um, and if they were paid, they were paid at a fraction of what British troops made. Yes. Um, no, absolutely. I do go into this in my book, in fact, um, that uh, the, um, the French and Indian, during the <coughs> French and Indian Wars, um, American troops weren't uh, treated with the same uh, equality as, uh, as British troops and um, were essentially treated um, only just this side of, of mercenaries. And um, there were several other things like that that were um, resented, understandably so. But I'm not sure what you mean by they weren't allowed to defend themselves. The um, American um, contribution to the French and Indian War was massive. It was the first contribution from 1754. In, in a sense, you started the Seven Years' War. Um, so um, so I, I would take issue uh, with you on that. conscious uh, repression of means of self-defense. Fast uh, uh, stores of munitions were not allowed? 
I think I th fear that what you're probably referring to, I think, is the way in which the um, the regular army took the lion's share of um, of available stores and ammunition and so on. But I don't think, first of all, I don't think any of that can be blamed on King George the uh, Third, owing to the fact that the uh, war broke out six years before he became king. Um, and uh, and secondly, I think that it, you'll find throughout military history, regular forces tend to um, to get uh, the, the the lion's share before irregular forces do. Now, one more thing: you say a couple of times that every penny uh, raised from Americans stayed in the United States. No, from could you the, explain what that from, meant from the from the Stamp Act? Everything raised from the Stamp Act was going to be spent on. Um, on uh, troops that were stationed in America. Nothing was going to be taken from the Stang Pact to, back to England to go into the British coffers, the, the Treasury coffers, and so on. That's the only point I was trying to make there. Um, Peter Robinson. Uh, there's, a, there's a mic. It's, 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 it's on its way. Peter is going to be interviewing me for his TV show. So the idea that he gets two bites of the cherry, I think, is a little bit, uh, is a little bit much oh, anyway, but there we go. go Sorry. Uh, I'll ask a question now that I won't ask when we speak on Friday. Got it. Um, <laughs> you attack the Declaration of Independence. We will get to that on Friday. But Good. you also attack the Whig historians who for 200 years have maligned George III. Who are these Whig historians? Why are they so important in your reading of history that you assume we know who they are? <laughs> and why do they so annoy you? Um, well, I, I, I suspect you'll know who they are as well. You'll have heard of, um, of uh, Macaulay. You'll have heard of, um, of um, George Otto Trevelyan and his uh, father, the Trevelyan uh, father and son. Um, going really all the way up to the 20th century, Jack Plum, I would call a Whig historian, for example. And all of them tried to make George III out to be a tyrant in British um, political terms, who was constantly attempting to expand the powers of the crown. And they um, therefore pick up on what Edmund Burke and uh, the radical Whigs, uh, such as Charles James Fox, were saying in Britain. But in fact, George III revered the, um, the Constitution of uh, 1688. He didn't extend it. The only one occasion when he appointed a prime minister who didn't have the support of the House of Commons was William Pitt the Younger in 1783, when um, the radical Whigs were attempting to essentially nationalize the East India Company. And in the subsequent general election, Pitt won a, um, a landslide victory. And so it vindicated what the king did. So I, I uh, yes, you're right. They, the Whig historians do get uh, under my uh, under my skin a bit, um, but largely because, indeed entirely because, they um, wildly exaggerate the um, the so-called authoritarian aspects of of George III. He didn't have authoritarian aspects. One can totally understand why the founding fathers should want to clothe themselves in the mantle of 1642 and 1688 and those revolutions against Charles I and James II. However, the, you can't fit a Hanoverian monarch who believes in limited government and doesn't believe in the divine right of kings into that parameter, it strikes me. But I'm sure we're going to get onto this when we go on the show um, on, uh, on Friday. Uh, gentleman in the middle there. Thank you. Morton Grocer. Uh, Lord Cornwallis, when he sur surrendered at the end of the Revolutionary War, 
could be considered as the point person for having lost the most valuable colony in the history of the British Empire. Only a few years later, he was made the Governor General of India, and I wondered whether George had anything to do with his trajectory or his re-iconization. Uh, yes, that's a very good question about uh, Cornwallis. Cornwallis had been the aide-de-camp to uh, the king, um, and he was also um, related to various friends of the, of the king's. And the king did not blame Cornwallis personally for the uh, catastrophe at Yorktown because uh, he felt that Cornwallis, although, of course, Cornwallis's march up from uh, Charleston to uh, the peninsula at uh, Yorktown um, was not part of the overall plan. He, he did it uh, essentially because he, he thought he could, he, he thought he could win. Um, but... People in Britain, and especially the king, felt that had that it was really the fault of the Royal Navy not being able to uh, get Cornwallis off the peninsula, and that had the grass um, been defeated, uh, had the Royal Navy done what it's the duty of the Royal Navy has always been, which is to sink French ships, um, it would... Um, have um, it would have had a different outcome, and so when he came back, he was not court-martialed like um, Burgoyne was. Uh, he was, um, as you say, given very important tasks. The, one of them, as you say, was uh, to um, to uh, command the troops in India in the Maratha Wars, which he did extremely well. And also, um, he was responsible for putting down the Irish Rebellion of 1798, and he was put in overall control and command of um, the... Um, of the British Army when there were threats to um, um, to mainland Britain as well. So he was somebody who the king uh, king trusted and um, and didn't blame for the uh, disaster at Yorktown. Gentleman right in the front here. What was the state of democracy in the time of George III? Now, the king cannot do anything very powerful without the consent of Parliament. In those days, who had, who had power to do what? Well, that's a very good question because um, it changed enormously during George III's reign. Partly, of course, because he, had, he did go mad on five occasions and was blind um, in, in, for the last ten years of his life. He was blind and deaf and senile. And so the powers very much slipped um, from the monarchy to the, um, to the prime minister and the, and, the, and the cabinet during that period. Um, but also because he um, found a prime minister who we mentioned earlier, William Pitt the Younger in 1783, who he trusted and liked and recognised was an extraordinary figure. He was very unlucky, really, that of the 14 prime ministers who he appointed during his um, during his reign, only two of them really were exceptional. William Pitt the Younger and his father, William Pitt the Elder. And his father, unfortunately, had a... Uh, by the stage that he was appointed prime minister, he was uh, so riven with gout um, that it had dri driven him mad, essentially. And he didn't have a, um, a audience with the king for two years, hardly turned up to parliament at all, um, because of this, uh, this disease, this terrible disease, which everybody thinks is so funny. But let me tell you, it jolly well isn't. Um, and which you can uh, nowadays... Um, 
uh, deal with with some alcoxia and uh, allopurinol. Um, so, um, so those are two aspects of it. And the third, really, is that the way in which the parties over his very long reign, he was the longest reigning king in, of England, 59 years, um, the parties became ever more powerful and they coagulated much more. When he became king right at the beginning, they were just a, a group of factions, usually cousins in, uh, in Parliament, who, uh, who coalesced around individual figures. By the time he left, by, by the time he died, um, there were identifiable parties, the Whig Party and the Tory Party, um, and certain independents and so on. So it was a, it was a, um, a much more um, uh, unified structure, which therefore um, meant that the king, that the crown, had less room to manoeuvre between them, frankly. Gentleman here. And then out can we give a, um, a mic to this lady here in the front? Uh, thank you. Sir. Out of curiosity, you finished Churchill, you're like roaming around the world on your book tour for that. Were you just like in, again, clearly the last king of America, it's kind of directed towards us. Were you in America and you thought, my gosh, these people don't have any idea what this guy was like. You know, what really triggered you to write this, this uh, biography? Um, it certainly wasn't that, <laughs> I assure you. Um, no, I, I'd written um, Napoleon about Napoleon before and the Napoleonic Wars and the Battle of Waterloo and so on. And, um, and I, so I'd always, in the, in the back of my mind, known that George III was the, easily the most misunderstood um, monarch in British history as well as uh, American, in my view. Um, he... Uh, I... I I subscribed to Google Alerts and, um, for George III. And when I, so every day I get an alert whenever George III's name is mentioned anywhere in the American media, on, on, in newspapers or on podcasts or on uh, web, websites and so on. And they are universally, viciously negative. The words dictator, despot, um, tyrant and so on, are the only words that are ever used about George III, and there isn't a day that doesn't go by where somebody somewhere says that he was a tyrant. And it like, struck me as being um, an, abs an absurdity to consider this essentially benevolent uh, monarch as a, as a vicious tyrant. As, you know, as I say, we know what tyrants look like in those days, and he wasn't one of them. So I thought it was worthwhile um, publishing this book. The, the reviews have been very um, uh, generous. As, I, as uh, Victor kindly said, it's been chosen as the book of the year in England. So um, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that you might have the same um, mature and open-minded attitude. <laughs> uh, sorry, there's a lady in the front here, and then there's a gentleman in the middle uh, there in the red um, jacket. Thank you very much. Um, I totally agree with your interpretation of George. Um, uh, picking up on what the gentleman next to me uh, start, asked about, um, wasn't it Parliament that passed most of the legislation that taxed the colonies and that the war really was a war about taxation without representation in and, and I, I have a few more things. Yeah. Uh, that it really was car Parliament that passed the pa uh, the the Sugar Act, the Navigation Act, all of the acts, and that George became the target, as you mentioned, a propaganda device used by Jefferson. 
However, George Washington, uh, George III got even with Jefferson. I'm, I'm a biographer of John Adams. And um, when John visited the king, the king said, as you said, it was very complimentary to him. But at the same time, at the end of his talk, he said, I'm very glad that it was you who were chosen to be the first minister to Britain. And when Thomas Jefferson, who was then the American minister to France, visited, George III turned his back on Jefferson. I don't believe that's true. Um, I go into this in some detail. I think that Jefferson's memory 40 years later in his autobiography is uh, incorrect. He makes three or four uh, statements, factual statements in that paragraph, uh, which can be proved not to be true. And uh, I think that he was remembering with advantages, as uh, Shakespeare put it. But let me go back to, and, I'll, and, and it's in the book, and you can um, uh, take issue with, you, with it if you disagree. But I, I think that once you read it, I, I really do think that you will appreciate that he wasn't um, being rude to Jefferson, even though Jefferson, needless to say, jolly well deserved it after 28 clauses in the Declaration of Independence. But can I get your, to, onto your pay, point about taxation without representation? Because, of course, that is the greatest of the cries of the, uh, um, of the American Revolution. However... Um, at the time of the Stamp Act Congress, the Virginian and the South Carolinian uh, delegations were ordered by their uh, provinces not to accept representation if it were offered. Uh, by the time of the peace offers of the Carlisle Commission of 1778, um, where representation was on the cards if the Americans wanted it, it was of course too late because they'd been fighting for three years. But um, I don't think that you can... Um, you can claim the, um, the uh, great wrong of no taxation without representation if you're already going to turn down the offer of representation. I'm Bob Benson. Uh, this is, might be a frivolous question, considered a frivolous question. That's good. I, per good. I was looking forward you, to one of those. <laughs> per perhaps you could comment on, the, in the play Hamilton, the characterization of King George and perhaps the lyrics of the songs. <laughs> um, yes, um, do you know, it's not at all frivolous, owing to the fact that um, there are large numbers of uh, people in my country as well as yours who only know of George III through the uh, Hamilton, uh, the musical, who does, I think, completely capture the show. I mean, obviously, I love the show as well. I, my foot was tapping all the way through it, and it's uh, completely historically incorrect. Um, the, uh, he's, he's presented as this sort of camp yet sinister yet, um, yet and slightly sadistic figure who will um, bring battalions to remind you of my love. You know, I will, kill your, I will kill your family and friends to remind you of my love. Just not King George III at all, who was a, uh, a very devout and practicing Christian. Um, a never, there isn't a page of those 100,000 um, pages that the Queen has made available that show any of this kind of aggression or viciousness, uh, let alone sadism, that, um, that Lin-Manuel Miranda perfectly understandably um, uh, came up with. May I also say something else that I think is quite interesting is that um, in those 100,000 pages, uh, neither, not, neither I nor any of the other uh, Royal Archives scholars or the Georgian Papers Programme scholars at King's 
College London, has been able to find so much as a sentence to support the 1619 Project's assertion that the Founding Fathers um, started the American Revolution in order to protect and continue slavery. Uh, there was no plan at all on behalf of the British um, government to uh, extend the uh, 1772 Mansfield Judgment, let alone the 1215 Magna Carta um, uh, abolition of serfdom to America. I mean, one can, one can obviously argue that that is a terrible uh, moral indictment on George III and his, uh, and his ministries, especially Lord North's. However, it's not there. Um, and, uh, and, of course, that is a central assertion of the 1619 project. Uh, Richard uh, Munro here in the, in the right. And then we might have time for one more, and that could be the gentleman right. Thank you, there in the stripy uh, tie. I think it was uh, Max Booth who said that if the Americans had rebelled against the Romans, they would have sent consular army after consular army until George Washington was crucified. And uh, Thomas Paine tried to... Uh, implicate George III in that kind of mentality by associating him with the Duke of Cumberland's repressions on the islands. But do you think instead that William Pitt and George III had learned their lesson and actually refused to be tyrannical and repressive the way the Spanish were in New Orleans and other places because they were restrained. These ideas of burning churches and things like that are really total fabrications. Well, there are, um, there are of course, examples of outrages, of terrible atrocities and outrages in the American War of Independence because it, um, because about a third of Americans were loyalists. And so it had all of the worst aspects of a civil war. And one looks at civil wars, the Russian Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, and so on, the American Civil War, which become much more violent and, and bloody because they are civil wars um, than, a, uh, than a, what one might call a normal war. Um, However, again, you know, George III wasn't, um, wasn't responsible for any of that. He was, uh, in a sense, he was a very, it was one of the things that I found most interesting about this book was that he wasn't somebody who would travel to America. He was king of Ireland and king of Scotland. He never went to Ireland or Scotland. He was a lecturer of Hanover, never went to Hanover. Um, and so, it, in fact, he never went north of Worcester or, or west of Plymouth in England at all. He basically stayed in the home counties all his life. And yet he had this extraordinary intellectual uh, curiosity, you know, where he built up this, this massive library. He had 40,000 maps. The to his topographical map collection at the British uh, Library is a, is a beautiful and splendid thing. But he thought that he could sort of understand the world through uh, what he was reading and seeing, rather than actually going there and, and seeing for himself. Right, last question before you all queue up and buy the book, which is just over there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, remembering two things. First of all, know thine enemy. And secondly, Christmas is coming. <laughs> Sir. I have a frivolous question that you can end with. Uh, can you forgive Lucy Woolsey for her depiction of George III? Um, Lucy has come round, I'm pleased to say, to a, uh, to a, a more um, uh, nuanced approach. She is in her next, I understand at least, in her next um, TV series, she's going to be looking at George III's 
um, mental illness and she's going to be dealing with it in a um, in a much more sort of modern way, looking at what all the modern doctors are saying. Um, that knowing Lucy, she'll still dress up as Queen Charlotte, um, but um, but nonetheless, that's uh, that's very fetching. I, I, I find, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.